Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 42. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this episode, we have a very interesting juggling duo, the Institute of Jugology, made up of Galen Harp and Ellen Winters. Before we get to their interview, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the International Jugglers Association. You can find about the IGA at juggle.org, especially their yearly festival, this year to be held in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, July 10th through the 16th. Registration opens soon, so go to juggle.org for all your IGA needs, information, and a lot more at juggle.org. Also, our newest sponsor, Ringdama. That's right, ringdama.com. Wear it like a ring, but play it like a toy. It's the new skill toy from the Holzman Labs. So check out ringdama.com and get ready to rock the ringdama. Okay, sit back, drop everything, get ready for the Institute of Jugology. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 42, the Institute of Juggleology. Welcome Galen Harp and Ellen Winters. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. How are you, Dan? Doing great. Good, good. And where are you exactly located? Uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Now, Fayetteville, Arkansas, is that, is that a hotbed of juggling I'm not aware of? What, what kind of scene is there in, in Fayetteville, Arkansas? It's growing. We have a university here, so we get a constant cycle of university jugglers that come through. We have a number of jugglers that live here, and recently our juggling club kind of joined forces with the local aerialists. So we have circus club meeting twice a week. And how many people would come to a meeting out there in Arkansas? Generally around 10 people. Sometimes it can, we can have a good night and it'll be 18 to 20. Well, it's not bad for sort of a local get-together. Now, Galen, you're from Arkansas. That's where you grew up? Yes. And uh, what was it like growing up in Arkansas? How, what, uh, what year were you born, if you don't mind me asking? How old of a man are you? Uh, 1976. Okay, so when did you learn to juggle and what was it like uh, juggling back then? Well, I didn't juggle. I didn't learn to juggle until I was 26. Oh, yeah, that's quite I kinda, late. Yeah, I kind of always, I, I think of myself, I was always a juggler. I just didn't learn the actual activity until far later in life. I mean, you like to fidget with things where you're always playing with different objects and stuff? Yeah, one of the first jobs I had was a short order cook. And uh, I taught myself how to spin an egg on the grill and throw it with a spatula and re-catch it and spin the spatula on my finger. And so I, I kind of always gravitated towards manipulation activities. I just didn't learn to juggle until much later. I was also a grill cook as a younger man. It's, a, it's quite a, almost a juggling activity, especially when all those orders come in at once and you have to do a ton of different things and have them all come out at the right time. Yeah, for sure. Now, Ellen, you grew up in uh, Iowa, Davenport, Iowa. Is that correct? Yes. Now, that's very close to where we're having our juggling festival. How far is Davenport from Cedar Rapids? It's about an hour and 20 minutes. It's not bad. Not bad. Uh, for all, and how many jugglers are there in, in Davenport, would you uh, say? You know, it's been a while since I've been, had many connections in Davenport, but uh, the last that I was there was probably about 15 years ago, and I would say the juggling club meetings were 15 to 20 people. Okay, so we, all we need is like another 500 or so, and we'll have a pretty good turnout. They used we, to have a, a really nice festival there every October, but I think they stopped doing that in 2004, maybe, 2005? I can't remember when yeah, that was. the Quad Cities Festival. Yeah. Oh, right, right, Quad Cities. I've heard of that one. Now, you learned quite a bit earlier than Galen. What, what age were you when you started to juggle? I got the Klutz Book of Juggling for Easter when I was 11. 
And my parents were thrilled because I was out in the yard three days in a row for several hours throwing and dropping. And so, yeah, it took me about three days to teach myself from the Klutz book. I love the Klutz book. I recommend it to anybody trying to learn. So. And what attracted you to juggling? Did they know that would be something you'd be interested in? I was pretty all over the place as a kid. I was into a lot of different things. I think it was a pretty safe bet that if it was weird and would hold my attention, I would be interested. I was not very connected to juggling or jugglers until I got to college. Then I, Carleton College is where I, I did my undergrad, and I joined the juggling club, and I probably made it to juggling club more than I made it to class, and started traveling to festivals, and really, I think learning to pass is when I fell in love with it, and it took hold of me. And what about juggling made it stick, do you think? You had all these different interests. What about juggling itself, sort of intrinsically, was attractive to you? Well, I like the challenge, and I really love the process of being able to take something that you don't understand, and then your brain gets it, but your body can't do it. And then your body gets it, but it doesn't quite work, and then all of a sudden, it becomes natural. And it, well, not all of a sudden, obviously, you put a lot of work in, but that process of something that seems just breaking it down and, and working it out. And then additionally, I think I really like that it's a cooperative sport. I really like being able to go through that process with other people to make uh, a pattern amongst all of us work. I, it really took hold of me. That's very satisfying, isn't it? That idea that I couldn't do it. And now I kind of can feel how to do it. Now I'm starting to do it. And now I'm doing it. I mean, that happens in juggling over and over again, and it's very, very satisfying. Yeah, it's like it's direct reward for the time you put in. Each 15 minutes you spend on a trick, you can kind of feel it get better. You'd think after juggling for over 20 years, it would stop being surreal to me, but to take something that I bang my head against the wall for a month, and then a year later, it's like breathing, it still completely fascinates me. I guess you'd call it sort of a random reinforcement, though, because... Sometimes you do take a step back for every two steps forward, but you can sort of feel this sort of constant forward improvement. I've, of course, been involved with juggling now for 42 years, and it still still attracts me. I'm still trying to learn new things, but maybe they're not as physically demanding, but there's definitely still new things to be learned at any age. So I think the level of reward you get does not go up or down very much with the difficulty of what you're doing. It's like I was talking with uh, Ben Schoenberg and his wife, Yvette. Uh, I don't know if you know them. They, they have a company called Serious Juggling. Yes, yes. I met Ben. Yeah, and we were talking about this idea where they say that juggling builds gray matter or that it helps to improve the brain's connections. It's done a lot for me in my life. In the past, I had struggles with ADD and with depression. And through training high-level juggling and learning how to cultivate that kind of relaxed focus, I actually ended up developing a lot of tools from juggling that helped me out in the rest of my life. I think it's a great tool. I've always wondered if there's a different kind of development in the brain between like drilling a certain trick, like a, a five clubs, where the creativity element has sort of been taken out and sort of overcome by the technical requirements of the trick versus sort of improving or being in the moment where you're kind of deciding where that prop will go in the moment. Like I was just watching a West Peden freestyle and you think he's making those decisions in real time. Yeah. You know, versus drilling like a seven ring or something. I just wonder how the brain reacts in those two different situations. Yeah, it would be cool to see a, a study of that. Uh, there has been studies done in relation to just the gray matter and the brain does produce new gray matter in people that juggle. 
and during the process of learning juggling and probably as you keep going through learning three balls, four balls, five balls, it does tend to go away. The studies show that once you stop that progression of trying to push the edge of what you're able to do, that that benefit does go down again. Yeah, I think it's all about learning new things. And then once your brain gets into that groove, you lose some of that benefit. I think that's exactly the, the idea I was trying to put across there, Galen. Yeah. Of course, you said it better because you're from an institute. <laughs> I think you touched on something else interesting in what you said. You were describing kind of two different ways of processing juggling and what might be going on in the brain at that time. Juggling, there's really, I think, kind of something in it for everybody because you can be cooperative or competitive. You can really focus on the flow and how it feels, or you can focus on achieving a higher technical mastery, or you can focus on all of these things at once. Like anything that you're interested in, would you like to play by yourself? Would you like to play with others? Like juggling accommodates so many different directions that you could go in. Yeah, I like it as a tool to foster creativity. I think it's a great one to sort of foster that idea of creation being something didn't exist and now it exists. And you see in some jugglers, this ability to create thousands of tricks. Like I just saw Water on Mars. I was in New York and uh, they were performing at the same time, which was a great coincidence. But you watch them juggle or if you watch their videos, you go, these three guys, Wes Peden, Tony Pezzo, and Patrick Elmert, have created thousands of unique individual tricks. And other jugglers, you could realize, well, they're great jugglers, but as far as creative artists or people that have been using the juggling as a tool for creation, they're, they've been a lot more limited. I mean, they're great jugglers in that they could do 10 rings or 11 rings or seven clubs, but the amount of creation just these three alone were able to do is staggering. So that's how I see it as a tool for, for creativity. Oh, yeah. And even with that, I think a thousand more tricks and a thousand more tricks on top of that are possible. Oh, it's, it's never ending, isn't it? it? There's really no limit. Each little bit of technique you find opens up a new door that you can go down. And every door that's opened from that one is another new door. And that's even just if you're using juggling balls. If you're going to start substituting other things in, that can have meaning to the work or to the pattern that you're doing, then it gets you, it just explodes the amount of things that can be conveyed through a pattern like that. Well, because I mean, object manipulation is central to our ourselves as humans. I mean, what what distinguished us as humans from the start? The use of tools, manipulating objects. Every uh, major goal we've ever set for ourselves as a species, more or less, has had some component that was accomplished through object manipulation, which seems inherent to us now. But at one point, we all had to learn how to walk. We all had to learn how to hold a pen. I think ob object manipulation is really at the core of, of what it means to be human, as cheesy as that sounds. Yeah. No, no. I mean, that's what sets us apart, this ability to use tools, to sort of discover tools and put them to use for our own benefit. Well, and then sometimes maybe even use them for not their intended purpose. Well, this desire to fidget, this desire to create and be artistic as well, not just functional. But what really impressed me about Wes when I saw him practice is he would practice like a technique. Like I saw him do this technique where like he'd like roll a, a ring down his arm so it kind of like wavered and create this sort of weird wave pattern. And he would, he would practice the technique. And then once he had the technique down, he would apply it all these different ways. So this idea of learning a technique that then could be applied. And I think we've, we've all experienced that in our juggling where you have one technique. You go, oh, wow, 
I can apply that to almost every trick I do, or this flourish could come in here. So that's yeah. an interesting uh, way of practicing, I thought. Oh, absolutely. Uh, creativity is a, is a process. I think, you know, it's just kind of a matter of asking, well, I have this, what defines this? What are the rules that make this happen? And knowing that, what can I change? Can I change a small thing? No, no. I mean, it has to exist within a certain limit, like as far as what's humanly possible. Like if you look at a juggling club or any kind of juggling pattern, it's not, there's no, there's not, it's in a bubble. I mean, it can't be non-limited because there's certain restrictions just based on human ability. So the idea you have to create within a certain limit or certain guidelines is what gives it structure. Yes. Is that, right. is that sort of what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, and j the basic idea that to me a blank slate is just terrifying. I, I want a rule, a reason to start to follow. Even though I may abandon that three steps further down the road, it's a path that I can start on. Like don't use my left hand <laughs> or take one shoe off, things like that. Just often completely arbitrary things imposed on what you're doing. I think another important part of creativity is recognizing mistakes as opportunities. Look, something different happened. Sure. And you can approach that two different ways. You can say, I like this different thing. Maybe I'll follow that. Or you can say, what made that different thing happen? And what could I change, you know, in another part? I think that creativity has been very mystified, but it's a pretty analytical process, which does not detract from the fun in any way, in my opinion. Well I think it's all about different information and the idea that creativity needs information to be fostered. So even a mistake is new information to be dealt with and to be looked at creatively. I mean, if it's something that we weren't expecting and it happens, you can go, oh, it's something that came from nowhere. Now I have something to work off of. Whether it was good or bad shouldn't limit whether you can look at it creatively. Right. Um, that is actually reminds me of... Uh... Viola Spulin's philosophy. She developed an improv technique that was really based on disregarding anything but the goal. So you're not thinking about whether you're doing good work or bad work, whether your teacher, your peers, your audience, anybody is approving or disapproving. If you're solely focused on the goal and immersing yourself in play, then you will get far greater results. Which I think is a really important concept, this refusal of acceptance or uh, how did you just say it? Approval. Yeah, or... approval, disapproval. Uh, taking part in an approval, disapproval loop. Whether you're looking at it like you did good or you're looking at it like you did bad, both of those things don't really get you to the end goal that you're seeking. It's a distraction from the problem you're trying to solve. So is the goal, could you give me an example of the goal you're trying to reach? Is the goal a problem you're trying to solve? And that the idea is that no matter what happens along the path to the goal, that shouldn't be judged? Right. So for instance, if you're having a problem moving around on stage, if you were to lay a grid, Im imagine a grid laid over the stage and number all the spots, and then just run your routine while someone yells numbers out at you, so you have to go to those grid spots on the stage, you're following the goal of just going to where they're telling you. Which is going to be far easier than following the goal of, oh, I need to move around more on stage because that'll look better and people will like it better. And I need to make sure I'm thinking about that. If you're, if you're playing a game with it, then right. it evolves more naturally out of what you're doing. It's kind of like that drawing on the right side of the brain, that sort of idea of when you take the analytical side out of it, 
and just to gauge the play aspect. Exactly. Yeah. A great book, by the way. Uh, was that Betty Edwards? Is that correct? Uh, I can't remember the author. Um, My wife's giving me the nod that that's the, she's, she's a graphic <laughs> artist. So yeah, I read it uh, we, uh, quite a few years ago. And it's very, very interesting, especially the exercise where you'll draw something upside down. Mm -hmm. And once you take out the sort of the idea of that's a mouth, that's an eye, the, the analytical brain deciding what something looks like, you can really do some amazing stuff. So yeah, that's why I draw everything upside down. No, I don't. But. <laughs> now, it's kind of interesting, this kind of discussion, because even the name of your group is sort of the Institute of Juggalology conjures up a, a sort of intellectual approach. Can we talk about how you two got together and, and formed this group? Yeah, we met in St. Louis at a juggling festival. I think it was 2004. It was at Jefferson Barracks. I think there were maybe 15 people there, but the headliner was Casey Beamer, and that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, and, Casey's great. Yeah. And I was already doing elementary school shows at the time, and I had already kind of wanted to find a partner that was a, a woman because I was running into this issues in schools when I would teach kids that the girls wouldn't really engage as much as the boys. Hmm. And after Ellen came to work with me, we saw immediately that it was really just because I was a guy up there juggling and there wasn't a girl up there juggling. And that was all it took to get them engaged. So we lost touch after that. And we actually ran into each other at the Davenport IJ in 2005. And I moved down to Arkansas in 2006. Yeah. Now, let's just take a step back, Galen, because you said you learned to juggle at 26, but then you decided to make juggling your career. How, how, that sort of, how did juggling take over your life that much? It just, it just kind of did. I, I remember I had my wife's father juggles, and the first time I went to go meet her parents, um, I found out that he juggled, and I uh, stole three juggling balls um, as I left the house, and I taught myself over the next week how to juggle, and the next time we went to have dinner at their house, I showed him that I could juggle. So I basically learned to juggle as an in with the father-in-law. But in that process, within really just a couple of days, I, I kind of realized there was this thing here that I had been missing, that it, it's something that had not been in my life that I knew that I needed. Hmm. I, I don't really have an explanation for it. I, I knew immediately. Within two weeks, I was already starting to try to make routines and uh, move it forward. Well, I, I don't think I'm a man you need an explanation for. <laughs> I think I felt that same exact thing. I'm getting a little misty. I'm getting a little misty here. <laughs> you have about the name Juggalology. Well, the, the Institute of Juggalology. That's what I like. It's an institute. Yeah. When I first started performing, I would show up a lot of times, and uh, especially here in the Southern entertainment market, they would just automatically expect a clown. And uh, mm. my wife is an English teacher. And uh, we were kind of trying to think of a name where that would not be possible. And so it kind of came out of that. And then two or three years later, I learned about the Massachusetts Institute of Juggalology, which was, uh, you may have heard of before, it's Claude Shannon. I've heard of Claude Shannon. The, uh, he made those mechanical juggling apparatus, the juggling, what would you call those, dioramas? Dioramas, yeah. And, and he actually published a few papers, and he had used the phrase Institute of Juggalology. And so as soon as I saw that, hmm. it, to me, it was just this great homage to this thing that is not really used anymore. Yeah, he was, I think, a mathematician, Claude Shannon. 
if my understanding is correct, he was fairly instrumental in the beginning stages of the internet. Hmm. Okay. Him right. and uh, our vice president. Yeah. Al yeah. Gore. Yeah. <laughs> Who's, I don't think he could juggle, so he's not. Uh... I think one, one might have a little bit more legitimate claim. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Now, the acts you guys have put together are quite unusual. We have three acts to kind of go over. But let's start with the one you're probably most known for, or at least the one I, I was blown away by when I saw in El Paso, because I guess I wasn't aware of you guys as much as, as I should have been. You weren't on my radar, like my juggling radar, as it were. And it was uh, the sand routine that's called, am I saying this right, mandala. Is that the, how you pronounce that? Yeah. Mandala, yeah. And that's sort of the sand painting. The Indian sand painting is called the mandala. Or is it just the design itself is called the mandala? The Buddhist monks uh, make sand mandalas, but Native American Indians also made them. Most ancient cultures made sand paintings. I believe there's a Japanese tradition as well. Uh, yeah, they would yeah. use paste and actually stick the sand down. Yeah, that piece for us came about, it was actually the culmination of a four-part series, but by itself, we wanted to represent the the nature of juggling. It's temporary. It's beautiful while it's in the air. It's beautiful while you're putting energy into it. But as soon as you're done, that goes away. And so we wanted to use juggling to create an image that would capture that by also being temporary. And the sand, we just love that it traces the throws in the air, but it also traces all of our movements, all of our mistakes, all of our catches are recorded in a different way on the final image. And that really appealed to us because no two times you juggle are exactly the same. And to be able to capture that, but also in a temporary way was a big part of that piece for us. Yeah, I always like to use the word ephemeral to describe juggling. Like it exists in the moment and then it disappears. Yeah, we, I like the term uh, arrested decay. Uh, yeah, I saw that on your website. Juggling is a state of arrested decay. I wanted to ask you about that. So does that yeah. refer to juggling in general or just this sand routine or all of juggling being a, in a state of arrested decay? I actually heard the phrase. I was at Mesa Verde, and they used the phrase to uh, explain the Park Service's relation to the ruins and mm. that they keep them in a state of arrested decay. And it just clicked at that moment for me that a juggling pattern does that as well it's it's this beautiful thing that is constantly decaying and through our energy we keep it going just a balance yeah the longer it goes the harder it is to maintain and the more it decays right that's a very interesting idea now what are some of the difficulties of juggling with the sand i mean is it coming back is it flying back towards your face and eyes the first thing people ask us is if we get sand in our eyes and we do right we had to train for about six months before we felt comfortable doing it on stage. And we actually had to modify a lot of our technique to accommodate that. So pretty much any time we do it, we get a little bit of sand in our eyes. The only problem is if we have anything that stops the opening of the sand prop right in front of our face, because it's kind of the same concept as a Russian, the, the prop stops and then the sure. sand side stops. Well, when that happens, it can shoot out in mass while we were developing this. We had a couple of times where my eye was so full of sand that I, I was sending the signal from my brain for mm. it to happen and it would not respond. And so there was a little bit of training involved in being able to make your eyes stay open. So the juggling, because we're the, some of the juggling patterns we're doing are, are difficult even without sand in your eyes. And so once the sand's there, you have this other mental thing going on. Pain, you're in pain. 
We don't do a lot of tricks with the sand where we have to look up directly into a sand tail. Passing tends to be okay because we can aim to the side of each other and, and organize our self throws so that the sand is not directed at our faces. But as we worked with it, we discovered that there were other things we had to adapt to. The props as the sand come out get lighter and lighter and lighter. And the craziest one is the ring. If the ring is less than half full, it'll wobble about a foot in either direction. It'll have this, we, we've been trying to figure out how to control it on stage because it's really beautiful. It's this very erratic. So, so, so sometimes the ring can actually be coming towards you, but right before it gets to your hand, it will move half a foot away from you. Like a, like a curveball or something. And yeah, very, yeah, yeah. So we had to do a lot of experimentation with like, how full should the prop be? At what point do we need to stop juggling? We had to practice with all the different weights. We also found things like getting better sand distribution, certain tricks like the sand balls, if you give them a slight spin as they leave your hands, will distribute more sand in the air. It was a kind of a constantly evolving process. Yeah, at first we didn't anticipate actually finding ways that I can throw a ball that will make what I want appear mm. uh, on the canvas. So like if I, if I give a ball a certain amount of spin, it does a certain thing. But if I spin it even faster, it does a different thing. So maybe we should describe the act a bit more for the people who, who perhaps haven't seen it. So the idea is you're juggling different props that have been filled with sand. And as you juggle, the sand flies out and you're left with this sort of drawing painting that you're able then to hold up and show people. Yeah, the... The first step of the process is we will lay down what we want to make a negative image of. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the sand will fall out of the props and accumulate on the ground. And then over the top of that, we, we kind of look at the clubs and the rings as a way to lay down an even fill of color. Right. And the balls as more accents where I can actually make a line happen or a curve happen. Gotcha. We've been working with not just laying down negative image stuff at the beginning, but actually layering it throughout. If we find something that we want to preserve and we plan on laying down another base coat or our images have been getting more complex, I would say over the last yeah. uh, year uh, yeah. by, by continuing to add things to and, the canvas throughout. And so throughout the piece, the objects on the canvas build up as the, as more sand is laid down. And then at the end, the objects are removed. And the final image that is a, a recording of the whole performance uh, is held up for everyone to see and then destroys itself. Hmm. Okay, I have a question. Uh, this might seem like there's something you maybe already thought of, of course. Goggles. <laughs> yes, yes. We have thought of goggles, but it is not that painful. Okay. <laughs> we, are, we took a shop where we let people help us make a mandala and we make sure everybody in the workshop wears goggles. Yeah. But if the first question almost everybody asks you, whether they're a juggler, a child, a lay person, whatever, if the first person they ask you is, do you get sand in your eyes? We kind of figured we should keep going with that. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, it does add kind of an element of not risk or danger, but of commitment to the art. It adds a psychological aspect. Like e even someone that is not a juggler understands that having sand in your eyes yeah. is what you're doing more. And it causes you to flinch. And you don't want to like be flinching while you're juggling. 
Right. And it's interesting that you use the word risk because we initially designed that piece kind of trying to play with the idea of risk. You know, it's it's risky to have an image underneath you that you're doing choreography over and throwing things, but yet it's an image you want to protect. And so there's this tension there. It's risky to have sand flying around. We definitely we're wanting to play with that idea. Well, as as well as when we do a pattern in the routine that does not have the sand and the objects, those patterns are all done over the actual piece. So if a drop happens or if a catastrophic drop happens, it could actually wipe out the whole piece. And where did the idea initially come from, the idea of actually filling the props with sand in the first place? Because that's a quite a unique concept. For me, like a, it came out of wanting to be able to have juggling produce something outside of itself. Right. So like throw would make a line, for instance. And it started actually with just a pendulum. We did a routine where we had rigged up a pendulum that held different colored sands. Mm -hmm. And we would do tricks around the pendulum and change the way the pendulum moved with the juggling. And somewhere in that process, we realized, why don't we put the sand in the props? I think it was originally, at least in my mind, partially about in claiming drops as part of the work. We really enjoy seeing complex patterns run for a long time. And this was just, I don't even remember what we did this for. It might've even been just for a renegade. We thought, well, jugglers will probably like this too. What if we made a piece of art that was entirely dependent on what was happening in the moment? We would let a certain color of the pendulum swing in a certain way, but only for as long as we could run 10 rings. And mm. then as soon as we drop, we would change yeah, the color. We would change right. the direction of the pendulum. And so every one of them would be different and every one would be based on whatever we were able to do in that moment. Very interesting how thought out the whole thing was and how it developed from that into the idea of the, the sand in the prop itself. and Because the image of it flying out as the, the prop turns or spins is a, quite a, a strong visual new component that I'd never seen before. Yeah, and my, my favorite is when a group of 500 elementary school could see it. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> Have you experimented with other types of materials inside the club? Like a... Like you know, small beads or, or pieces of plastic, or is it always sand? Always sand so far. We've played a little bit around with paint, but that's more just something we can do in our workshop. On stage, it's that the paint would be too messy. And a water probably would be too hard to see unless it was colored. If you have it lit right, I think I've seen a bit of Patrick Elmer juggling water bottles and the lighting is perfect. If you get the lighting right, water can look very beautiful. Well, as part of, I think it's part of their finale, uh, all three of them in Water on Mars, each juggle three water bottles. You definitely can see the water flying out, but it's, it doesn't last very long. It's, it's just a quick, whether it can maintain over a whole routine or something. Because you see the water flying out of a clear plastic bottle, it's, it's pretty visual, but it only lasts maybe 10 seconds or so. We're, we're very envious we have not got to see Water on Mars. I was just lucky. I was there for an event called Toy Fair, which is a big uh, trade show of, of toys at the Javits Center. And they just happened to be there at the same time. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it was great. And I'll drop the name Michael Karras because he got me tickets. And ah. we, we met for breakfast and it was great. And we talked juggling. And, and there's nothing I like better than <laughs> meeting a fellow juggler who loves talking juggling like Michael. Who just came out with a very good video. His year in review videos are always very strong and very interesting. If you're a listener, check out Michael Karras's year in review video. Let's get back to you guys. Now you have another routine called Some Assembly Required. That was the uh, second in the four-part series. Mm. 
Do you describe that one for us? Yeah, just real quickly, the circuit one, the whole series is designed around the concept that everything kind of follows this pattern of you realize you're in a system and you need to break free from it. And so circuit one is about breaking free from whatever system you're in. Just to break in here, that was the one that we did with a rope strung across the stage. It was our first mixed prop piece. I think I saw that one at an IJA festival. Yeah. By system, do you mean sort of like, like my favorite movie I think is The Matrix, you know, the (laughs) Keanu Reeves. By system, do you mean break out of a system of society or how are you using the word system, I guess, is the question. It's across the board. I yeah. mean, it's within your own. It's some, it's something that we found was important because it's something you come up against over and over and again. The, the most relatable way, I think, would be to say it's kind of like when you uh, wanted to leave your parents' house and you wanted to escape from that system to mm. get to a new system, whatever that it would be. Sure. And then the year two is actually about what happens as soon as you break free from that system. So this is the sum assembly required. Yes. You, as soon as you break free from whatever it is you felt you needed to break free from, you have a new problem. You have to build something new in its place, right? And so sum assembly required is we have found a blueprint of mixed props. It's a, it's a puzzle that we solve throughout the piece uh, and, and add kind of one more thing to it. But we played a lot in that piece with kind of, what would you call that? The dynamic shape. So basically the blueprint showed two juggling shapes that we found could change how they were held together in relation to each other with different tensions and throws and stuff. And we played a lot with that in that piece. But the basis of the piece was, okay, now we're on, we're out. Now we're on our own. We have to build something new. When you do a performance, do you still do all four pieces or do people book you for a single piece? Or what is a performance like for you guys with this, with this sort of cycle? It depends. We do the we can do the all four together. We usually end up doing two and four without the first and the third piece. I would suggest if anyone ever wants to rig a spring-loaded rope that runs through all your juggling patterns, <laughs> okay, they rethink that. It's really Oh man, the worst was on our way up to the IJA. We were trying to find rehearsal space as we traveled and my sister lives in Iowa City. She found us a warehouse to practice in and it was great. We could rig our rope up. But the only way we could rig our rope up, we hadn't even thought about this as a problem, was mere image to how we were used to practicing it. And it was completely impossible to practice. The rope was just in the way at every turn. Just this subtle difference based on the space we were in. And, and we find that we could probably develop some kind of freestanding way to hold the rope. It might get kind of expensive because we put a lot of tension on it. We throw our whole body weight against it. So in general, that one is difficult because a slight change of angle or height in that rope will really affect the juggling we have to do interacting with it. So we usually end up just performing two and four. As far as the numbers go, which one is two and which one would be four then? Two is some assembly required. Okay. And four is mandala. Gotcha. Because you have another program as well called Juggler for Life, but that's more of a, a something you teach in schools to, to foster creativity. Yeah, for schools and libraries and things like that. We just found that a lot of people view creativity as this mystical thing that only some people were given. I think that couldn't be further from the case. I think we all have the ability to be creative. You just have to learn how to access it. Yeah, like maybe some people, some teachers are like, oh, no, no, creativity is not for everybody. Just these special weirdo kids. Right. But not for everybody. (laughs) 
In that show, we break down the creative process and actually have the kids help us create some juggling tricks. And we, we give them some tools that they can use to be more creative in their everyday life and whatever it is they choose to do. And don't think that very often that the average elementary school crowd actually comes up with some pretty decent tricks. <laughs> Usually between the two of us, one or the other of us is able to approximate what the kids come up for us. But, you know, starting with really simple things like take something that you already know how to do and change one thing about it. And over the course of the presentation, we take them through several of those different rules and show them how they can go ahead and, and use them themselves in whatever they choose to apply them to. So you take like a common task, like perhaps tying your shoe and say, hey, how can you do that differently than you, you normally do it? Would that be kind of a task? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. I like creativity myself. Like I said, I use juggling as a way to teach creativity or comedy writing as sort of a tool, once again, for the overall principles of creativity. I think of creativity as a sort of a funnel, like there's a source and some people's funnels are wide open and others have been blocked by, you know, negative influences or lack of self-belief. How do you feel you're connected to the original creative source? I feel like it's something that I get better at the more I practice. Yeah, I think it's just like the, the funnel, like you can definitely clear out those obstructions and widen the funnel. That's what I think because you look at something like, having too many ideas you haven't pursued. Like if you have ideas stacked up against each other, it's hard to think of more ideas. Like, oh, no more ideas. I haven't even gotten to the ones I've already thought of. I think that's a real stickler in, in the funnel. I read a book recently by an author who was talking about her creative process. And she said that sometimes when you have an idea, that's, that's the moment that you can make that happen. And, and as you grow and as other things grab you, it's okay to let those things go if you can't, if you can't do it right in the moment. Because often, if you try to go back to something a year later, you're not picking it up from the same place. It's not, you would be better off maybe creating something fresh that you're more in touch with in that moment. Well, that's a, that's a technique. I mean, some people will write a script and they'll put it in a drawer and then revisit it months down the line. And some things have to be acted on in the moment because the inspiration is upon you. I'm not sure to what extent I agree with her, but I thought it was an intriguing idea that ideas kind of have a life of their own and they're very related to exactly where you're at in your journey at whatever moment you have them. Yeah, I think it's also important to realize that 90% of the things you're going to come up with are not, are not worth pursuing. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't stop seeking that 10%. Yeah, that, are, that are the awesome ideas. Well, I think every idea has to be pursued. If you think it's a good idea, it has to be pursued until you prove it's a bad idea. Right. And then it can be dropped. But if you have a good idea and decide not to, not to pursue it, I think that's telling your subconscious mind, well, don't send this guy any more good ideas. He won't even pursue them. <laughs> yeah. So why bother? Because he had one he thought was good, and he just couldn't be bothered with it. Yeah, that makes sense to me, too. I think you can find your way out of this conundrum just by playing, learning through play. Yep. It all comes back to that. If you are just really excited about that idea, not about how you're going to be able to present it or what it's going to mean for your development or anything like that, if you're just excited about the idea and pursue that, then you will bring life to it. Also, I'm not afraid when an idea turns bad on me. I think that's another thing that people, I like when an idea is bad sometimes. You're like, oh, okay, oh, that didn't work. <laughs> and you can just drop it. Like I had this idea one time for like a golf club that would have kind of a funnel on top so I could get like two golf balls going at the same time by hitting them up and catching them like in this funnel that would go down a ramp that would then launch the ball up and then I would try to hit it again with the, with the face of the club. 
So it'd be a continuous loop of two golf balls down the face of a golf club. And as soon as I tried it, I realized, oh, by, by hitting upwards with the first to hit the first ball, it throws the second ball out and it was impossible. But by proving it impossible, I felt it very liberating. Like, oh, okay, I don't have to think about that idea. And I don't mind that. And not only that, but it may have been, whether it was or not in this circumstance, it always could be the ground or the jumping off point for another idea that is really good. So following an idea that may not seem good at first may still lead to something good at the end of it. Well, as long as you go for practicality, because there's probably something to, to salvage. There's some idea to salvage that actually could work. But I think a lot of people, when, they, when, they're, when they're sort of the fantasy of an idea bumps up into the reality of the idea... They're, they're disappointed because it doesn't fit what their, their, what their imagination could create. Right. There's I, an Ira Glass quote that I like really well that says that if you're an artist, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but uh, if you're an artist, it's probably because you enjoy good art. And therefore, when you first start trying to pursue and create things, you're probably not going to meet your own high standards and that there's this disjunct that discourages people, but that just put it in perspective, I guess. How do you think about art and competition? Because you guys have also uh, competed a lot of times, and there's definitely a, a disconnect in some people's minds between sort of the artistic side and the competitive side of juggling. How do you guys view that, that, that idea? Competition wasn't really a focus for us. Yeah, for me, for us, it was a venue. If we produced something good enough, we could get into that venue. I mean, think about the magnitude of the opportunity of being able to show all the people, well, not all the people, but show a, a large group of people at once who all know about what you're doing and also love it, something that you've created. I mean, that kind of feedback, you, you just learn so much. And yeah. yeah. So I think maybe I can, I can sum it up. The only time I have ever been present when the awards were given out at the championships are the years we were in the championships, and that was because Ellen made me. Yeah, I told that the usual leaving before they announced the result was probably not a good plan in that context. So normally when you, when you would see a competition, you'd watch the show, but you really didn't care you know, who won or, or who, how it turned out because you'd already seen the performances. Correct. I, I knew I had watched two to three hours of material that people had put their blood, sweat, and tears into, right? All that being said, I do think that the idea that it's a competition and only a limited number of people will get to be in the show does did drive us to create a higher standard of work. Well, yeah, um, you, you, you had to meet the bar to get in the venue, for sure. Especially the first year, one of, some of the feedback we got from the judges was, you guys really packed a lot in. You probably made it a little more complex than you needed to. And, and it's because we had this idea of competition in our minds that it had to be really crazy and difficult. And Yeah, we, we tried to not make that mistake the next three years. <laughs> a little better pacing. Now, you guys won it in 2014. Is that... Yes. I'm checking my notes. What? Where did that take place? I, that was a year I, I wasn't there. Was that Purdue? Winston-Salem? Oh, no. Winston-Salem. No, it wasn't Winston-Salem. I think it was Purdue. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Because I think I was at Winston-Salem, but I've missed quite a few over the last decade or so. Because I usually would judge. I think I judged. You guys competed in El Paso. No. No. Wow. I do get them. I do tend to get all my festivals <laughs> mixed up. Yeah, I think it was Winston-Salem two years. I think you are right. It was Purdue in 2014. It was Minnesota, Rochester. then Winston-Salem, yeah. and then, yeah. I mean, it is sort of like definitely a rarefied situation to be competing, but also be competing in front of all your peers. I always thought it definitely upped my game. 
Yes. Uh, this knowledge of saying, well, okay, in a normal show, if I were to uh, be droppy or we used to say biff like a big dog, uh, something like that, you know, embarrass yourself, you'd be basically embarrassing yourself in front of all of your friends. <laughs> and that always up the bar. I think it's really fun to design shows to be presented to the juggling community because we can put things in there that other people might miss that maybe were very hard won for us. And it's just really satisfying to be able to basically like, talk to people who get it. And, you I, know? <laughs> and I too feel that same thing, but I've tried to start seeing it from another perspective, which is that it's actually an audience of people that know exactly how difficult it is to do these things, much less do them on stage. Uh, with all of the energy and uh, adrenaline that comes with that. So they, they know how difficult it is what you're doing, and, and they're a little more accepting, I think. I think they know how difficult it is to do it in front of them, but it must be difficult in front of us Yeah, being all jugglers. Yeah, so I've tried to start to see it from that perspective, and that makes me feel better at least. <laughs> I've always thought that there are no losers on stage who are competing. Not that the people in the audience are losers, but they took that chance, that opportunity, that is presented, like you say, by be competing or doing some venue at a juggling festival. A lot of people don't, whether it's a renegade or different events, yeah. they don't take part. And it's such a, a great opportunity to get that feedback. Yeah, and anyone, I think anyone competing, they really care about juggling. That, that's why you're doing it. And so it's vulnerable. Oh, yeah. You're stepping out in maybe one of the most vulnerable places you could be as, as someone who loves juggling. I have to think about stepping back in. <laughs> you know, I haven't competed in many years. I'm like, well, it still will be a challenge and kind of fun for me. And there are definitely a few years I think, well, maybe I could have snuck in the top three that year. So it's not out of the question. Now, you guys put on your own juggling festival. Now, is it the Northwest Arkansas Juggling Festival? Is that the title? Yes. yes. NWA. NWA. Okay. Because there's also a rap group called NWA, isn't it? Yeah, no, no, no connection. No connection. Okay, nobody makes that mistake in Arkansas. Like they don't think that the rap group has shown up to throw a festival or something. Not yet. It would hey, be. It would be pretty interesting. They're more than though. welcome if they want to come play in the gym or whatever. I actually like some of the music. My music tastes are pretty far flung, and there is a little rap that sneaks in there once in a while. Now the dates are April twenty first to the twenty third, but this is sort of a different type of festival. Could you describe what type of events and what your festival is like? Yeah, our festival's more like... It's kind of nocturnal. Yeah, it's more of a, a European-style festival. I, I have the property I live on has enough room for everybody to camp on, and I have a juggling space at my house. And then we also rent a gym during the day, but usually no one even makes it to the gym until noon because we usually stay up till 3 or 4 in the morning juggling at my house. Like A lot of the events are basically... Sort of more of a party atmosphere, more of like everybody hanging out at the house and juggling and, and camping. Definitely more of a, a big weekend-long juggling party. I wouldn't say less of a festival, but definitely more like a party. I like the idea of more of a party. I think the idea of a festival being everybody in the gym, sort of standing in their own space, practicing, is kind of a waste of the event to some degree. I mean, you can always do that on your own. I think the idea of getting together and partying and kind of staying up late and, and th these kind of talks... And it's so easy for the experience of the people there to not be a shared experience. Everybody's having their own little experience kind of happening at the same time. That always struck me as strange. That I mean, certainly some people are passing and some people are socializing, but a large percentage are just sort of practicing in their own unique little areas. Right. My technique always was to get the, get up early because I'm an early riser, anyways. 
I get in my couple hours of sort of what I would call practice uh, before anybody else is even up. And then and there'd be a couple early risers who I'd, I'd recognize who were the my equal guys who would get up at six and practice six to eight or something like that. But then I could relax the rest of the day and just kind of schmooze. Yeah. We practice five, six days a week, six hours a day. When we go to a festival, I want to like juggle just for the fun of it and, and not really practice. In fact, I think the, the weeks we go to the IJA when we haven't competed, we're like, it's no practice, no practice all week. <laughs> That's a pretty serious schedule. How do, you, how do you break that down? You're saying five to six days a week, five hours to six hours a day? That's yeah. our duo practice. We both do a solo practice as well. Jeez, that's how, how would you break that? So you meet for that long a period of time? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot that we get done. We sure. have kind of a standard set of upper level tricks that we try to touch base with every day for a couple minutes just to keep them running smoothly. We spend time on, of course, business stuff. Um, yeah, I guess so that includes, <laughs> that includes, it's not just strictly practice. Some of it is working on paperwork type stuff. We'll devote time to playing, generating some new pre-shocks or playing with some new concepts or whatever. We try, we try to balance a little bit of technical, a little bit of creative, a little bit of business every day. And what are some of the techniques you guys focus on as far as you'd call the big tricks or the ones you want to maintain? What are some of the sort of high points you guys strive for? The mixed props is probably one of the biggest priorities. Yeah, I mean, it mostly is just kind of like the upper level stuff that we have in our show. Just make sure that that's easy, relaxed, that that never slips. And so the mixed. Oh, go on. Yeah, and so uh, like one of the one of the main things we hit every day is ten mixed objects. I am still we're we're working towards some other things that hopefully we'll be in a, a show sometime soon. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, more like the long-term goal tricks that you really have to put the time in every day to make them happen. I haven't, I haven't had many of those in a long time. So I don't, <laughs> that takes a lot of commitment for the sort of long-term planning of, of putting in the technique and the practice first to achieve a, a stunt down the road. For us, the mixed objects was really important because it allows us, when a juggler watches a performance, I think they tend to like quantify what's going on. Is that a two count? Is that eight objects? There's this vocabulary running in your head if you're a juggler. Mixed objects allows us to short circuit that so that even a juggler that's been juggling for 20 years has to come to the performance with the same viewpoint as someone that's not a juggler. They don't understand what's going on. They have to just kind of accept and enjoy the beauty of what it is. Now, would you be using 10 different objects? Is that the, when you say 10 mixed mix props, or is that 10 completely different objects? Now, uh, the, we think of them as compositions, so there's a lot of different compositions 10 objects could be made out of. I gotcha. We would each start with five, and we would each have two rings, two clubs, and a ball. So say we pass two balls at the same time, mm -hmm. so two balls cross in the air. Right. When a juggler sees that, that looks normal. That's what you're used to. Sure. When a club and a ring cross in there, things start to get confusing. Plus, it must get more difficult as far as just the passing of 10 objects when you have to also focus on the different types of throws, you know, a flip with one as, you know, sort of a, a ring or a ball, all yeah. those different kinds of techniques all kind of coming one after each other. Right. But the, and that is true. And it did probably take longer than, say, just around 10 objects of all the same prop type. Mm -hmm. The cool thing about it is it is now to that point proving that anything can be made normal. Like I don't, 
I don't have to make those calculations anymore. I don't have to think about it. My body just catches a ring or a ball or a club or whatever comes in. What I like about mixed props is that it's you can really highlight patterns within patterns. You know, you don't just have a pattern and all the objects are the same. You have each position throughout the pattern can do different things or look different both by itself or in relation to other patterns. For example, if the same object is crossing at the same time, that's very ordered. But you can plan how you pair those objects in the air and you can also do things with isolated orbits where a particular object will appear to just go back and forth as a self in our hands while the rest of the objects flow through the pattern. And so it gives you kind of a lot with, which I really like. Now, are you guys planning to do any kind of competing this year in Cedar Rapids or any type of performance out there? I don't know. I don't know. We are not together going to do that, but something may be in the works. Okay. You know, I'm the festival director there. Since I saw you just last year, it didn't occur to me to invite you out to be special guests or to participate in something that I was organizing. Yeah, yeah. If you guys were to take part in some form, I would, I'd be delighted. Yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me if something like that happened. But also in the same regard, mm-hmm. doing all the years of competing, the IJA for me is uh, the festival is is a battery. It's it's this place I go to like hook back up so I can fuel up the cells to produce throughout the year. Well, we have some interesting features this year. I hope that the battery will be overloaded with with new energy and excitement because... Uh, I've been hearing things that have come out and it sounds pretty awesome so far. Well, I mean, I could guess to do a couple of teasers. It wouldn't hurt during the interview. All the special workshops are free. Oh, that's awesome. So everybody was being encouraged to take all the special workshops. Uh, we have Jay Gilligan doing a, one called Juggling Junk Food, which is just fun experimental tricks and Ooh. wild bursts of creativity. Then we have Peter Davison doing Movement and Juggling. You know, bringing his dance training and all his training with air jazz and juggling choreography. Uh, Alexis Levalon, who's a great Diablo player to for the Diablo enthusiasts. And of course, Amron Rosval, the magnet club maker. So all those would be free. And if you bring your own clubs, he'll show you how to make your own magnet clubs, which I think is, is pretty extraordinary. Oh, that's incredible. And to be offering the special workshops for free is just awesome. Like the first few IJ festivals I went to, I, I came home with full, a full notebook both times. And I would throughout the year, some, in fact, the first uh, year I went, I did not even make it through the notebook until I went back to the festival with stuff I wanted to learn. But it's so great. I think that the idea is that you don't have to take all three days just to experience one class or experience one class with each or just to have the ability to sort of be in an entire group, not a group of 10 or 15 or, unfortunately, sometimes it's quite small. Like I was in one group that had to be five or six people uh, for one of the special guests. So I think to open that up for everybody to experience it is uh, once again part of the theme of this year of being more all of us coming together as a community. I love it. Yeah, it's awesome. The idea is there. The desire to have that kind of festival is there. So I'm putting the energy into making it. So if the people will, will get involved and bring that good energy with them, like you guys do, I think it'll be. A, I think we'll be able to feel the glow. That's of course our yeah. our slogan for the 70th festival. Hey, that brings us up kind of to the current time, and we're sort of getting to the end of our time. So why don't you guys let us let us know about like what are you guys doing currently? What kind of venues? Uh, where do you see the future going? And we'll sort of bring this one to a close in a bit. 
Well, we're really excited. This year we became part of the Arkansas Arts Council. We're on their Visiting Artists Registry. It's a really great program that allows us to reach out to uh, seven different states that they partner with. They, they will pay 40% of our performance fee for any nonprofit that books us. And that's really nice because, um, you know, it just it makes us more competitive in markets, not our own offsetting travel. And, and stuff so like we've, we've been focusing more on getting a long form version of Mandala in as many museums as we can. So basically over a, a one to two hour time period, we make a sand painting using only the throws and catches of juggling. So you become more of an installation, like an art installation at, at a museum. Exactly. Yes. So that is what we're we're aiming towards. Nice. I like that idea because that's certainly a, a, an angle that would be unique, wouldn't it? Yeah. It would put you in some unique positions as far as the types of opportunities that would come your way. Yeah, it opens up some areas that have not been markets that are opened up before. Nice. You guys are also involved with teaching. You have a, a youth juggling academy. Is that currently going? Yeah, that's through the through the International Juggling Association, and uh, we do a button program, so like a merit badge type program. It's free to anyone that's an IJA member to use. So if you know anybody that runs a teaching program or anything like that, please contact me or send an email to the Youth Juggling Academy because this program can be added on to whatever you're doing for really just the cost of shipping and handling. So for someone doing like school programs or already performing in the schools? Correct. Would it also be like for libraries or other venues or just schools? Anything. Anyone who's an IJA member can get these buttons for free to give to kids. Oh, nice. So if a kid learns to juggle or accomplishes some kind of juggling goal, you'd be able to give them a free button? Yes. Yes. That sounds like a very good program. Well, the program is meant not only to increase interest in kids in juggling, but also to add to the value of an IJA membership. And so these buttons, are they sort of an IJA logo button or what's the button look like? Our graphic designer is Louis Skaradek, and he did a really cool, almost 70s sporty feel for the first series. If, but If you go to the programs section of the IJA website, all their pictures of all of the buttons and then the requirements for earning them. And we'll give a good shout out to Louis because he also made the branded logo that's going to be the branded logo for the 7th anniversary festival. Sweet. Yeah, he's awesome to work with. Oh, he was great. Very good guy to work with and came out with a really nice, nice logo that kind of sums up the feel of the, of the event. Him and uh, Aaron Stevens was also very, very helpful in that. So big shout out to those two for their help on the logo this year. I think we've kind of come to the end of our time together. Is there anything that we haven't covered that that you wish we had because we still have a couple of minutes. No, I think that ticked off all the boxes. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, you two. And I look forward to seeing you both in Cedar Rapids and talking more about juggling and creativity and all the great things we discussed today. Absolutely. Hi, you're very welcome. It was, it was a lot of fun to have the conversation. Thanks for having us. So a big thanks to the Institute of Juggleology. That was podcast number 42. Thank you once again to Galen Harp and Ellen Winters. Thank you both. Thank you. Ah, uh, thanks. Well, that was The Meaning of Life, episode number 42, Drop Everything podcast with the Institute of Juggleology, Galen Harp and Ellen Winters. Thanks, guys. And let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA. Don't forget, the IJA's big convention, their 70th annual, will take place this year in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, July 10th through the 16th. I am the festival director... And be there or 
be somewhere else. But that doesn't make much sense. Because you got to be there. That's the place to be. Also, let's thank Ringdama. Ringdama.com for all your Ringdama needs. You didn't know you had any, but you do. Because you want to wear it like a ring and play it like a toy. All right. Let's thank Karen Holes, my engineer. And let's say something else to you folks right now. Let's say, drop everything except when you're juggling.